0: From the conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we
1: hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Next year's American presidential election is shaping up to be extraordinary. As things stand, Donald Trump is favoured to be the Republican candidate, despite his reprehensible refusal to accept the legitimacy of his defeat last time, and the fact that he's facing multiple charges over removing classified documents. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden has indicated he intends to run again, despite the fact he will be 82 at the time of the poll and 86 if he completed another four-year term. To discuss the coming election and its implications for Australia, we have Bruce Wolpe, who has just released his book, Trump's Australia, which canvasses and I quote, the shocking consequences for us, of a second Trump term. Walpi is a senior fellow at the United States Centre at the University of Sydney. He worked with the Democratic Party in the US Congress and in Australia he was on Julia Gillard's staff. Bruce Wolpe, can we just start with a brief overview? Why is U.S. politics so apparently dysfunctional? What are the long-term factors that have contributed to this?
0: Uh, Thanks so much, Michelle, and it's wonderful to be with you for this special podcast. Um, U.S. politics are dysfunctional because the institutions have grown in dysfunctional ways. Three examples. First, and it's been so evident, particularly over the past 20 years, going back to the election, the presidential election of 2000 and 2016, most people who vote for president, their votes are disavowed by the system. Uh, so Hillary Clinton did not become president in 2016, having outpolled Donald Trump by 3 million votes. And Al Gore in 2000 was not elected president against George W. Bush. And so the presidential election system is troubled. So to have two such strange election outcomes in a short period of time kind of crystallizes it. The uh, Senate in the United States is not Democratic either. All states have two senators. So Wyoming has the same number of senators as uh, California, which has a population multifold more than the state of Wyoming. So voters in those states are disenfranchised by the skew of the Senate. The Senate also has these small states get together, their senators saying, oh, well, we want even more of a voice. So it takes a supermajority to pass almost anything in the Senate. And that means even though a majority of the American people want gun control, they want abortion rights, they want voting rights, and outcomes on other important issues, the Senate cannot pass that legislation, even if Democrats control it. And that is very frustrating and shows democracy not working. And third, we have a Supreme Court, so this is the next branch of government, which is now dominated by a very conservative majority that is pro-gun rights, anti-abortion rights, anti-voting rights. And those justices are appointed for life. And this, is a, this will be a Trump legacy. He had three justices appointed. They will serve for decades, and that will skew the court for decades. So in important respects, the system is not working. And there is great frustration, and it causes people to get very cynical about American democracy and its future.
1: Coming to uh, the looming presidential election, do you think that Trump and Biden are certain to be the candidates?
0: As of now, Joe Biden is certain to be the candidate. The only thing that would upset that would be if there was a severe health issue that would prevent him from acting as president. Anything can happen to any of us on any given day, but Joe Biden, all things being equal, will certainly be the Democratic nominee. As far as Donald Trump is concerned, I see his chances of being the nominee as over 50%. His chances of prevailing in the election is slightly under 50%. And if I might just for a moment explain his strength uh, in the face of everything we know about him and follow about him obsessively in the news, he is a gravity-defying political entity. We have um, not seen his likes before. In Australia, if uh, any politician suffered a fraction of the atrocities that Trump has committed, there is no way that they would stay in office. A senator... Uh, in Canberra a couple, a couple of weeks ago, had his hands in the wrong places. He was gone in 24 hours. Donald Trump has had his hands in many bad places, and he served as president, survived two impeachments, has been indicted twice, and is running again to be president. So this is um, quite extraordinary. But he's doing two things. People would think, oh, you've been indicted twice. You should be a weak candidate. What, why? How can he be so strong at this stage in the presidential campaign. And he does two things. First, he says, this is a legal lynching. This is election interference of the highest order. It is another word uh, popular in Canberra in recent times, weaponization, weaponized. So what we have is, Trump says, is the weaponization of the Justice Department against me. So we have a Democratic president and instructing his Democratic Attorney General to mandate his Democratic Justice Department to convene a grand jury and indict Donald Trump in order to drive him from the ticket. And Trump says this is the most blatant case of election interference, political interference in an election in American history. But then the second thing is this is wrapped in a message designed to ensure that his base stays true and loyal to him. And if I may, Michelle, I'd just like to read a couple words from what he's saying on the campaign trail. He was indicted a couple of weeks ago, as you know, and in, this is in the classified documents case. And he goes to, to rallies and he says this. He says, in the end, so he has imagined throngs of his supporters in front of him on the podium. And he says, in the end, they're not coming after me. They're coming after you. Either we have a deep state or we have a democracy. Either the deep state destroys America or we destroy the deep state. And then he says, and it's almost biblical, he says, this is the final battle with you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. So he says, they're not coming after me, they're coming after you, my supporters, and they want to take me out in order to take you out. And this is the final battle. And I tell you, his people are amped up for the final battle, and they
1: want to wage it. So on polling so far, what do you think would be the likely outcome of the contest?
0: It will depend on two things principally. First, the enthusiasm of voters for their candidate. So vocal support and really itching to get to the polls because it is voluntary voting. It's not compulsory like Australia. The Trump base is very strong, but it's a minority of the country. It's somewhere around 40 percent. Is that enough to get a, get him over the line? He never cracked 50 percent in approval as president. He never got over 50 percent of the vote in uh, 2016. And so th- that's a that's a drag on him. With Biden, the issues are two. It's uh, age, uh, principally, he is 80 years old. Most Americans saying, do you want Biden to run for president again? They say, no, he's uh, too old. But his policies are popular. But I think the age issue really will depress the vote of some key constituencies, particularly younger voters who were so much for him in 2020. Uh, and, And then the other thing that will crystallize it is, if it is Trump versus Biden, The fear of Trump factor was huge, and it really carried Biden over the line. So we have to watch
1: that. You canvassed a number of factors that would rule out any uh, candidate one would think. What is the nature of the Republican Party that it would nominate Trump again?
0: Well, this has been the issue posed since Trump emerged, really, to take command of the party. And it really goes, in historical terms, you had the Ronald Reagan era, and now you have the Trump era. And the Reagan era was dominated by a strong U.S. posture in the world, strong military, less government, low taxes. But Reagan was for trade. Reagan was for immigration that would build the country. And so and, and that's, that's a balanced center-right agenda, not unlike John Howard to a degree, But Trump comes along and he has several themes that are really hostile to Reagan. I don't think Reagan would support. I think Ronald Reagan would hate Donald Trump. And I think Nancy Reagan would hate Donald Trump a lot. But but, um, there are four Trump themes that kind of cut against Reaganism. And they are nationalism, America first. With Trump, it's always America first. What's good for us? Second is protectionism. He um, is is against free trade. Any trade deal has to benefit the United States first and foremost. Third is isolationism. I mean, Reagan used force around the world. Trump brings American forces home from around the world. Now, in one sense, that's a good thing. Foreign wars are not terrific by any stretch. But Trump, he came within uh, an hour of signing a piece of paper on his desk to withdraw all U.S. troops from South Korea, just pull them out. His chief of staff took that piece of paper and put it away, and Trump never signed it. But isolationism is a real strong suit of Trump. And that also involves kicking over the architecture that was built after World War II. So NATO, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, uh, the, anything that has to do with energy, the Paris Climate Agreement, anything that has to do with international agreements on Iran nuclear weapons. He's against all that. And then finally, nativism, which is uh, borders, law. He's hostile to immigration, hostile to people, foreign people coming into the country and taking jobs. And so that is profoundly different from Reaganism. It's a populism, and he's riding it. He's very strong with the people supporting him.
1: It also seems remarkable, I must say, that the Democrats can't find anyone younger than Biden to put up as a candidate. Can you explain this?
0: Yes. It's now something in the DNA of the Democratic Party, even those yet unborn. And that is it. Goes back to 1980 and President Jimmy Carter. In 1979 and 80, Jimmy Carter was facing a ruinous economy of high inflation, interest rates that were close to 20 percent, and the country in recession, and an energy crisis on top of it. Shortage of oil, Arab oil embargo on the United States. There was also the humiliation of the Iran hostage crisis, where you might recall the Ayatollah comes in in the Iranian Revolution. Uh, His people seize the American embassy and hold Americans for 444 days in captivity. They were ultimately released when Ronald Reagan became president. Teddy Kennedy, the last living Kennedy brother, decided in 1980, late 79, early 1980, to challenge Jimmy Carter. He was very popular in the party, but he fell short a very bitter fight. Carter held on to the nomination, but the split in the party meant, in addition to all the other problems, but the split in the party meant that uh, Carter lost the election in a landslide to Ronald Reagan. Joe Biden is a successful president. And so to tear down a successful president would absolutely increase the chances of the Republicans taking the presidency in 2024. And so that's what I mean when it's in the DNA of Democrats. So there is no prominent Democrat even signaled that they were interested in taking out Joe Biden. And that's why he is the nominee today.
1: But surely the alternative to taking him down would be to have an organized succession plan, wouldn't it, for him to hand over to somebody who was popular, but uh, also was more likely to see out successfully another term?
0: I I, think he's he's stuck where he is in that Kamala Harris, the vice president, she's unpopular. There's no doubt about that. I think she's unpopular because she's not effectively communicating what she's done. I think she's underestimated in what she has accomplished. Uh, Biden chose her for two reasons, a uh, merit reason and then a political reason. On the merits, he wanted, when he chose the vice president, to uh, have a person of the same caliber and under the same terms as he enjoyed with Barack Obama. In other words, someone who could step into the presidency in, in a heartbeat if needed. And he judged her to be fully capable of doing that and discharging the office of President of the United States. And he believes that and there and he's seen nothing in the past three years to justify getting rid of her on the basis of merit and there's also a political factor which is obvious they've had the first black woman vice president for him to ditch her for somebody else the black vote would disappear and the black vote is crucial to victory for both of them so for those reasons she is staying but the, the calendar of his life puts him in a tough position of being 80 years old And facing these choices and and, uh, this political landscape at this time,
1: if Trump won a second term, what would that look like?
0: Uh, it It would look like the first term, but only worse. Every every aspect of what Trump did and was would be he would double down on them. There was something really interesting when I talked to senior foreign policy officials, Americans and Australians, Liberal and Labor. Democrat and Republican serving Republican and Democratic presidents and prime ministers from both parties. I asked them, what do you expect of Trump in, in a second term? And they said, um, he will never change. Um, he is erratic, unhinged. He governs in chaos, and that will continue. He is arrogant, and that will absolutely continue. He has no sense of history. You know, when Trump does something, he thinks he's coming across it for the first time. Like he uh, went to Hawaii and saw Pearl Harbor. And he's, And he says, oh, my goodness, uh, this history is really something. (laughs) It's just a shocker. He's completely transactional. In other words, he's not motivated by any moral considerations or ideological considerations. It's like whatever's a good deal at the moment, he is happy to entertain. He is unpredictable. Look what he did with Kim Jong-un when he uh, started a a process. He shocked Washington. The North Koreans come to the White House. They says, oh, I'm going to meet Kim Jong-un. Well, that was like, well we will see more unpredictability. And then he never apologizes. He never recants. He never retreats. He never admits anything. And so we will see that. And so all those factors in him will continue. But the most important thing that we will see is the lessons that he learned as president about how people stopped him from, accompli- from doing what he wanted to do. And so he will never have a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff like General Mark Milley who would not send troops into the streets of American cities to ensure law and order, and who would not have the military used in any way to seize ballot boxes after the November 2020 election in an attempt to overturn them. He will never have a chief of staff like John Kelly who would um, take a piece of paper about withdrawing from Korea and, and tell him, in many instances, you can't do this. I'm sorry, this is not done. Impossible. He will not have an attorney general... Who will stop him from prosecuting his enemies to the hill and that will go throughout the ranks of uh, the government jonathan swan one of the fantastic journalists who is australian norman son um, who now works in the new york times but in axios he broke the story that trump has a plan to absolutely politicize the entire public service in the united states And every employee will be vetted as to whether they're loyal or disloyal to Trump, and he will have the power to fire anyone who serves in the bureaucracy. So this will go on and on and on, and it will be, in fact, frightening.
1: And in particular, what would be the implications for the Ukraine war and American relations with Russia? Of course, Trump was uh, quite close to Russia in his first term.
0: That's exactly right, Michelle. And uh, I think uh, Trump would want to, I think Trump hopes that Putin will survive long enough to engage with him again. You, you know, a lot of people, I've asked journalists who cover Trump, just given the closeness of the relationship, and you might remember that summit meeting that Trump had with Putin in Europe, and uh, they met uh, privately for about an hour. Uh, Trump seized the notes from his translator so that he had them. No one else has a record of that meeting. And, and I, so I asked each other, what does Putin have on Trump that Trump is so subservient to Putin? And no one knows the answer to that question. But there's no doubt that Trump values that relationship and wants to continue it. He said in recent weeks, he says it all the time, you know, if I was, I can solve that war in 24 hours. And you know what he would do? To, he would get the, that, that 24 hours would be him calling up Putin and he'd say, Vladimir Uh, And Putin would say, Donald, uh, what should we do about Ukraine? And 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 Trump would say, Vladimir, Ukraine is yours, and the war would be over. A, A lot of people ask me, well, if Trump was president, would Putin have invaded Ukraine? And the answer is no, because what Trump would have continued to do in the second term is what Putin really wanted in attacking Ukraine, which is the destruction of NATO. Trump would destroy NATO. NATO would be irrelevant. Putin can have Ukraine. No problem. And so that, I think, is uh, part of the riddle of uh, Trump and Putin.
1: So you're saying that he wouldn't entirely and quickly sell out Ukraine?
0: Yes. I mean, he'll come into office and he'll say, oh, my God, the armaments of the United States are depleted. We've given them all to Ukraine. This is ridiculous. Yes, you will see a, a retreat from Ukraine under Donald
1: Trump. But what would uh, the American public's view on that be? And wouldn't he have to give some commitments during the campaign about not doing that?
0: He won't give those commitments. There is, not in the the Democratic Party, there is to a degree among Democrats, but more significantly among Republicans, a split where going back to the isolationism, bringing American forces home or or American material, you know, just more focus at home. There's a split in Republican support for arming Ukraine. There are some very strong hardliners, yes, give them as much as they want, sort of like the debate here that liberals are saying we're not, Australia's not giving enough. But uh, there's a growing number of Republicans who say, no, uh, we've given enough, we've done our job, and it's time to, for a new orientation. So uh, no, I don't think he will be forced into committing major continuation of aid to Ukraine.
1: Let's turn to the implications of a Trump win, if it comes to that, for Australia. Firstly, how much Trumpism has Australia imported?
0: What I see is I wrote the books that was what we have here in Australia is a big echo chamber of news from America. You know, you get up early in the morning, 6am, 7am, turn on the news and given the news cycle, what you hear on most days, leading the news is from the United States. And that became a uh, Uh, really apparent with Trump. And, you know, over the four years of his presidency and all the time since, Trump makes news and we hear it and it's absorbed. Now, there are some elements of the Australian political culture that really absorb it and really like it, and and they're animated about it. So that feeds into debate. And uh, in extreme forms, it can work like this. In Charlottesville, Virginia, early in the Trump term, there was a march of Nazis through the streets of Thomas Jefferson City. And we see in Melbourne today, Nazis marching in front of the parliament in Melbourne. And at the height of the pandemic, people were marching in Melbourne with a gallows on a cart being wheeled through the streets because of what they saw as um, extremism in government health policy. On January 6th at the Capitol, there was an insurrection and attack, as everyone knows and remembers. And there was a gallows on a cart with a sign over it saying, hang Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States. We have Trump attacking the media and saying fake news. And guess what? Australian politicians, when they don't want to answer a question, they say, oh, that's fake news. So these things leach into Australian society, the Australian dialogue. But then the question is, does Australia adopt Trump policies? And the answer is no. The the extremism on Trump issues uh, simply doesn't translate. The last election, I think, is a really strong indication of that. We, We did not have stuff against transgender people, those candidates failed. We don't have controls on books uh, in libraries uh, or attempts to do it or teaching indigenous history. Those culture war buttons that Trump and other Republicans push, they don't have much prominence here, and that's a really good thing. I think Australian democracy is extremely strong. Australia will continue to be an echo chamber, but I'm hopeful about uh, how Australia can manage the incoming from the United States.
1: We all remember how well Trump got on with Scott Morrison. How do you think Anthony Albanese would cope with dealing with the Trump presidency?
0: My sense of of Prime Minister Albanese is that he would have a very strong professional and political posture of wanting to deal responsibly with President Trump and managing the issues so that Australia comes out as well as as can be possible. However, I think that uh, Trump will have a very low opinion of the Prime Minister I think he will be well briefed on what the prime minister has said about uh, Trump and the insurrection against the Capitol, uh, uh, gun violence in America and abortion rights in America. When Trump sees all that, he's going to look at him and say, you're not my friend. And I don't know how much we can really do business together.
1: So it would be a rocky relationship, you're saying?
0: It would be a very rocky relationship. I had a lot of fun writing this part of the book. It's a couple of paragraphs, but he'd look at him and say, you don't look like a prime minister. Your glasses are wrong. Your suit's wrong. Your hair's wrong. Your voice is wrong. You think I'm going to play golf with you? Forget it.
1: How would Trump handle China? And what would be the implications of that for Australia? Because, of course, now Australia has an improving relationship with China.
0: That's really one of the biggest issues. And it has several dimensions to it. He wants, a, he wants a trade deal with China. He was on the brink of doing it when COVID interrupted things, and Trump actually believes, in part, that COVID was deliberately launched by China to take down the United States economically. Bob Woodward has documented that in his writing. So th- th- there's a China and trade. At the same time, there's Trump and Xi, and Trump really wants to establish what he saw as a special relationship with Xi. And then there is the Indo-Pacific, the Asia-Pacific, and then there's Taiwan. And so the question is, in that calculus, what does Trump do achieve his objectives, and are they at the expense of the other objective? And on the Indo-Pacific, Asia-Pacific, and AUKUS in particular, I think Trump will look on AUKUS in a very transactional way. Is this deal really good for the United States? Where are the jobs going? Where's the money going? Are we being paid enough? How much is for me? And, uh, And I think he will seek to reassess AUKUS in that light. And then let's say that a trade deal hinges on what China wants, uh, okay, we're going to make concessions to you on trade, Mr. President, but what do we get? And I think and China could have an opportunity to say that AUKUS, uh, we're kind of annoyed about AUKUS. Um, we see that as a, as a threat to us. We don't like it. Can you diminish that a little bit? Can you just push that down so it's not so, so potent and important? And then the question of Taiwan. If Trump gets enough, would he say to Xi, okay, I got what I want. You want Taiwan, one China policy, Taiwan is yours. So all these things are in play. I don't have the answers. I'm not expert enough in the answers. But the point of the discussion in the book on these issues is, given that Trump has a fair chance to win the presidency again and come back, we should now, in 2024, look at all the policy issues that Trump can undertake to affect Australia and do some proactive planning, war gaming. What could come? If this comes, what do we do? If he does something with Taiwan, what do we do? If he does something with NATO, what do we do? and figure out options to manage these issues. And I think that would be a really important exercise. I'd like to say it this way, Australia should be proactive in 2024 in order to avoid being reactive in 2025.
1: Of course, some of these issues though would be very difficult to, to manage or the reaction to some Trump actions.
0: Yes. Uh, Taiwan in particular, I don't know here in Australia how Taiwan will play out if China moves to take it over and do to Taiwan on a grand scale what they did to Hong Kong, you know, a couple of years ago. I just don't know. In the United States, there is the strongest bipartisan support for Taiwan. Both speakers, Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, have dealt with the leaders in Taiwan. And so I think there is a break in the Republican part, break like being pump the brakes on a car a break on Trump as to his latitude in ceding Taiwan to China. So we would have to see how that plays out. It's complicated. But I do know that Trump wants Xi, he wants something on trade, and I think he's open on everything else.
1: Just finally, uh, you write, Australia's democracy will survive, but the alliance against America might not. Can you unpack that for us?
0: Yes, just first briefly on why Australian democracy will survive. Australia has in, has in place the guardrails to ensure protect and promote uh, the democracy here. It has compulsory voting. The United States doesn't. Compulsory voting ensures that extremism does not win elections. Second, it has a Westminster system which has uh, its own uh, norms and, and and culture, but but principally it means that there can't be a blow in Uh, to become prime minister of Australia. Uh, Clive Palmer will never be prime minister of Australia, nor will Pauline Hanson, nor will Twiggy Forrest. The next prime minister of Australia will be the head of the majority party in the House of Representatives. That person, having served in parliament, will have ingested uh, the Westminster values and culture. So no one can come in like Trump completely from the outside, take over the entire system. Um, Third, we have depoliticization. Institutions are not politicized here. There are no confirmation hearings for High Court justices or members of the Reserve Bank of Australia, which means there's less political interference in those institutions, which are just so important to how democracy functions. So, Australia's dem- democracy will survive. It can withstand the Trump echo chamber and assault on values, and it works. And it's, uh, Australians should be proud of their democracy, and they should be vigilant about uh, the, f- the future of, of, of their democracy. Uh, but there is an existential question posed by Trump, because he, I believe that he will make every effort to tear down American democracy. And I think he will do it in several ways. I think he will, not only the politicization of the entire public service and so forth, but what if he starts disobeying laws passed by Congress? What if he he stops obeying laws, uh, rulings of the Supreme Court? What if he sends the troops into... American cities for law and order? What if he starts jailing journalists and shutting down media organizations and using regulatory agencies to put competitors, companies he doesn't like, out of business? And if, you, if he goes down that road, America will no longer be a democracy. And, and, and a lot of people see that he will destroy American democracy in the second term. So the question is, Australia and the United States are aligned. They're aligned because of the values they share. That means fidelity to democracy, human rights, the rule of law. And if those things don't exist in the United States, what are we to be aligned with under those circumstances? How can how can an alliance continue if Australia is democratic and the United States isn't? And that, I say, is an existential question. And God forbid we go there, but I think that is on the table too if Trump comes back in a second term.
1: Bruce Wolpe, thank you for talking with us today. It's a a bleak and and rather alarming, more than rather, a very alarming picture that you paint about uh, the future of uh, the United States democracy and Australia's relations with it, but some fascinating uh, observations and insights there. That's all for today's Conversations Politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. Goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. We work with academic experts to make their work accessible so we can all be better informed. Everything we do is free to read and free to republish. Our only agenda is informing you, but we need your support. Every donation helps ensure quality information is available to everyone. Become a donor today. Go to donate.theconversation.com or follow the link in the show notes.